be seated. Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 14. As we continue to work through the book of the Psalms month by month, we find ourselves in Psalm 14. So let's hear God's holy inspired word as we find it in Psalm 14. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Of all the workers of iniquity, no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord. There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous, who shame the counsel of the poor. The Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. The Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. And Israel be glad. The last several psalms we have considered have had the common theme of of deliverance of God's people amid the prevalence of wickedness. The psalmist pictures again and again God's people surrounded on every side, besieged by the wicked, with seemingly no help or escape. And yet, with each psalm, we're pointed to God's faithfulness. We're pointed to the perseverance of God's word, the perseverance of God's promises that he will indeed save his people. Psalms continue to hope in salvation. And this is no less true with Psalm 14. Our text is a very sobering description of the total depravity of mankind as it describes our God-killing desires. But it ends with a joyful hope of salvation being found in God himself, who is a refuge for his people. So as we live in a world filled with sin, let us grow, let us learn to grow in the hope promised in God's word, the hope that God is our refuge. Psalm 14 opens with the memorable words the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. We have here the fool presented to us. And the concept of fool in Scripture is one which has a variety of meanings and expressions. A fool can be one who is simple. And as Proverbs 14, verse 15 says, believes every word. There's a lack of intelligence here with with this description of a fool. He believes whatever somebody tells him. The fool can be also someone who does not speak wisely. His mouth, as Proverbs 15, verse 2 says, pours forth foolishness. Fool is also one who, who does not learn, but is constantly searching. He is constantly asking questions and yet never arriving at the truth. 
He can be rebuked a, a thousand times. He can be eaten a thousand times and yet never grow in wisdom. This is what Proverbs 17 says of the fool. It says, rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. And verse 24 of, of Psalm 17 says, wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding, but the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. He's constantly searching and yet never learning. Fool is also one who loves his sin and will not leave it, though it is hideous. Proverbs says, as a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. And yet the, the word for fool in Psalm 14 is a very specific word, and slightly different from the word that, that Proverbs most often uses. The word for fool here is a word that appears only three times in Proverbs, and it's the word nabal. And the word nabal strikes at the deep-seated reality of someone's sin. This type of fool is one who's impossible to reason with. This word perhaps describes the, the fool of fools. And nabal is a good example of this in, in 1 Samuel 25. His name is, is Fool, and, and the history here is that David gave protection to his men as they were shearing their sheep, and yet Nabal wouldn't provide for David's men. Abigail, Nabal's wife, said of him, uh, speaking to David, Please let my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Now, to call someone a fool is not as much a statement of intellectual ability as it is a moral declaration about someone. You can have a fool who is intellectually very wise and has an incredibly high IQ, and yet he makes tremendous moral failures. Solomon, for all his wisdom, was a fool in going astray into idolatry and adultery. We see this with Psalm 14. The fool is one who does wickedness, thinking there is no God. And we know that this isn't simply a vocal declaration that the fool is making. There, there's no uh, statement here that, that implies that this is something that the fool is broadcasting to everyone. Instead, this is the statement of the fool's heart. This is something in his innermost self. David says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Sin always comes from the heart. Your sinful behavior comes from a heart that desires and loves sin. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew fifteen nineteen. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Sin is a heart condition with each and every one of us. And atheism is a heart condition that Scripture specifically describes as foolishness. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, foolishness, sorry, atheism is, is the beginning of foolishness. Yet this psalm should be humbling for all of us, whether we believe in the existence of God or not. 
this psalm points to an aspect of our sinful nature that is common to each and every one of us. We so often like to quote this psalm against those who who very vocally deny God's existence. And sometimes we can think that this psalm applies solely to those who we, we would classically term as atheists. We like to call these the fool. And they certainly are fools for denying the existence of God. That is an untenable position. It is intellectual suicide to, to say there is no God, uh, that God doesn't exist. And saying that, someone is declaring that they have, they have examined all possible evidence regarding the existence of God and come to the conclusion that there is absolutely no God that can possibly exist. In a sense, you'd have to be God himself to make that declaration that there is no God. This is an intellectually impossible statement for anyone to honestly make. But we have to realize that this psalm isn't just talking about those who we might classically describe as atheists. There's much more going on here. We note that David switches from the singular fool to talk about a plural they. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. David will later go on to describe how among all the children of men, among every single person on this earth, there is not one who does good. In other words, the psalm is talking about every single person. The psalm is talking about you, and it's talking about me. So how are we to understand this? Every single person who willfully and intentionally sins against God is declaring a type of atheism. Each time we go to commit a sin, we do so often with a whole host of justifications. But often chief among those justifications is that God will not judge me for this sin. God will not deal with me as I deserve for this sin, and and so I can get away with this sin. And with that justification, we, in a sense, are murdering God in our hearts by acting either like God does not exist or God does not exist as Scripture speaks of him. We can get away with our sin because we think God is not actually God. Frederick Nietzsche was no Christian, but perhaps even an unbeliever, Perhaps even as an unbeliever, you recognize the danger of saying that there, of saying there is no God and that God does not exist. In his book, The Gay Science, he tells a story of a madman running through the streets, shouting, I seek God. And the people who, who hear him saying, I seek God, make a mockery of him. They, they, they say, well, maybe God is sleeping. Maybe, maybe he's doing this or he's doing that. Eventually, Madman in frustration cries out, God is dead. And perhaps you've heard that statement before, God is dead. What Nietzsche is getting at in this passage from his book is that the age of reason had seemingly killed God, but it was a premature killing because nothing has replaced God or Christian morality except for human sinfulness. Anytime man kills God in his heart, he finds himself fashioning a new morality, and he rises up in the place of God as God. The madman in 
uh, in the gay science says God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, a murderer of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? He's saying there, we, we, we have killed a God with our reason, with our materialistic philosophies, and yet we're going to need to invent some religion to replace God, some, some new morality to replace God. Yet Scripture tells us that no matter what morality we, cre- we, cre- we create, it will always be sin. When we sin, we tell ourselves, there is no God. We tell ourselves, surely I am the right for, for getting angry right now. God will, will be on my side. Or we're picturing a different God. We, we create and fashion a God after our, our own image. We say, I am justified in not loving my, my spouse. God stands with me. Obviously, he can see that I am in the right here. Or we say, God will not see me do this. I can do this secretly. God is not omnipresent. God is not all-knowing. God is not omniscient. I can do this, and I can outsmart God. Or we say, God is not such a, a holy God that he would get angry with me for breaking the Sabbath or for gossiping about my brother or sister. Is it not true that each time we willfully sin, we are saying there is no God? We go and sin thinking that God will not judge us for that. Or that we are smarter than God. Or or that we are better than God. And what we know and what we do is better than what God has told us we ought to do in his word. We may not be denying God's existence when we sin, but we are certainly denying his character. We deny his ability or his desire to bring justice against us. We lessen God's holiness and righteousness down to our standards. We, we take God from his position of authority as creator and put ourselves there in that position. We deny God's sovereignty over his creation and commanding us as his creatures to obey his will. We, with Adam and Eve, are desiring to become like God with his authority to determine right and wrong. And yet all that is acting the fool. Because God does exist. All that is acting the fool because there is a God who will judge all of us for all of our actions. We so often think we can get away with our sin, yet Charles Spurgeon rightly said, but as denying the existence of fire will not prevent its burning a man who is in it, so doubting the existence of God will not stop the judge of all the earth from destroying the rebel who breaks his laws. We can deny the existence of God all day long, 
And yet, we will still come face to face with the reality that God does indeed exist. We can rationalize our sin. We can soothe our consciences. We can find all sorts of ways to deal with our guilt. But none of that does away with the reality that God does exist and will call us to give an account for all of our sinful actions. To think that will not happen is acting the fool. While the fool says in his heart there is no God, Scripture tells us that God, as a judge, searches to see if anyone does good. Verses 2 and 3 say, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are, are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Notice here that David is describing all the children of men. The Lord tries them to see if there there is any who seek God. He, He searches, he bends over and examines. Is there any in this earth I have created who does good? The Lord concludes there is not one. They have all changed direction from following his word. They do not walk in his way, but make their own paths. I was in uh, Scissortail Park recently, and uh, walking along some of the paths that they have there, but, but they're, they're making new paths. And they're not making new paths as part of their original plan, but because people continue to walk off the path so often that, that in a sense, you know, uh, rather than plant grass there, it makes more sense just to put a, a, a permanent path there. And that describes our sinfulness. We don't stay on the path of God's word, but we constantly go off the path. Not only have people turned aside, but they are corrupt. Job uses this word corrupt to describe uh, man's filthiness. That's what, that's what corruption is speaking of. It is speaking of, of the filthiness and, and the odiousness of our sin. Job 15 says, sorry, Job 15, 16 says, How much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water. Man drinks iniquity like water. He is filthy and abominable. Words of Psalm 14 are very much a sobering and a sombering description of the total depravity of man. Man, apart from God, can do no good. He does not have the ability to choose good. That's a lie that is very much prevalent in today's society and even in the church, that, oh, man can choose good. Uh, that we, we have that freedom to choose good. And yet Scripture tells us here that we are free only to sin. That is our human nature. That is our fallen human nature. All we can ever choose is sin. This is the sad state of the world that all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. These words ought to remove all self-righteousness from us. 
It ought to remove all thought that we can somehow save ourselves by our obedience to God. For we have together become corrupt. We saw that in Romans 3. As Paul makes it absolutely clear that there's no way, no possible way that you can be justified by the deeds of the law. Not even the Jews, not even the most faithful and persistent Jew who, who gets himself circumcised and, and obeys the law from his youth can be saved by the deeds of the law. For we have all become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Yet perhaps you might object to, to that statement based on human experience. You might say, well, this, this Psalm 14 doesn't really seem to describe my experience with humanity. No, it doesn't even seem to describe the, my, the, the unbelievers I know. The unbelievers I know, they, they seem to be decent people. How, how can Scripture speak of them as being wicked and evil? And I know them, and they, they seem to be half decent. You know, they love their family. They, they work hard. Well, in answer to that, we must be sure that we define goodness as God defines goodness. Goodness in the eyes of God is, is not this arbitrary thing that people do that makes you feel good. It seems today that uh, something is defined as good if it makes us feel good. I, I think there's maybe a change happening in, in, the, in the world today with that word good. You know, we, when we think of something that's good, we, we often think of a meal. Uh, that, was, that was a good meal. I enjoyed that. That was tasty. Or, or maybe we think of uh, a piece of music. We, we, that was a good piece of music because I enjoyed listening to that. Uh, goodness, it, often in our realm, is, is a very subjective thing. And this happens with people as well. We think people are good because, they, well, they were kind to me. Or because I, 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 I saw a feel-good movie or a video of them doing something that, that restored my faith in humanity. You see those sorts of videos online. You know, there was a, a feel-good uh, video. Perhaps they, they gave money to strangers or did some work to help somebody in need. Goodness today is, is all wrapped in this subjectivism. People are not good simply because they, sorry, people are good simply because they, they make us feel good. But this isn't how Scripture speaks of goodness. Goodness isn't this subjective thing of our feelings. Goodness is based upon God's Word. Goodness can never be something that's subjective. Goodness must always be objective. Goodness in the eyes of God is not arbitrary. Instead, goodness is living in faith to God, obeying His commandments for the purpose of giving glory to Him. If the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Goodness must be tied to seeking God's glory. And how do we seek God's glory in this life if not by obeying God's very clear commands in Scripture? 
God defines goodness for us. God defines moral goodness for us in the Ten Commandments. Yet it's not simply enough for us to, to, to do the Ten Commandments. We must do so in faith towards God. And this is how I've, I very much appreciate how the Heidelberg Catechism talks about this and talks about what a good work is. A good work is one that's done in faith towards God, to the glory of God, and in keeping God's commandments. Those are the three components to something that is truly good. This definition of goodness, this biblical definition of goodness, quickly demonstrates how there is not one person on this earth who is good. And this is certainly a hard message for people today. It's a hard message for us to say of ourselves, I am not good. So often when you go out and talk about the gospel with people, there's a quick desire to to, um, make yourself appear righteous, to, to justify yourself and say, I'm, I'm not really as bad as, as all that. Oh, we can even find this with ourselves. When we're confronted with sin, we, we might put up our guard a little bit. Say, well, I'm not, it wasn't that bad of what I just did. You know, surely you're, 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 you're over-exaggerating. We like to justify ourselves. And so this is certainly a hard message for people today. And it's hard also because we have departed from biblical morality to a subjective morality. We tell ourselves we must be good people because other people accept me for who I am. So that's so much of the language of the world today. Well, I got enough likes on social media for, for this idea I posted or, or for this description of myself. Well, I, I must be a good person. Morality has become something that's defined by the court of public opinion. We allow ourselves to think we are decent people because we get likes on social media. Our friends support what we say, regardless of whether it's based on God's law or not. Social media has has really made it very easy for us to develop this subjective morality that is based not on God's word, but on how many likes I get on a post or how many affirming comments I have. I believe this week, with the releasing of the body cam footage of the police beating Tyree Nichols, you saw many denials of human sinfulness. With the release of that footage, there are many people asking, well, how can this possibly happen? Aren't we evolved past this at this point? What is wrong with human society that there again and again there are these horrible acts that happen? Many people justly and rightly condemn such, such actions. They, they had enough of, of an objective standard of morality to see how wrong that was. Those police officers violated the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. They violated it in their thoughts, words, and actions. I heard many news commentators asking, why, why didn't anybody in the group stop this? Why was this allowed to continue? And these commentators scrambled to, to find some solution to, to what's happened. They, 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 they try to, to come up with answers. 
Some argue that this is the problem of education, and so they advocate for, for more classes, more training, more seminars. Others argue that this is uh, uh, the problem of power. Power is sinful of itself. So there's something wrong with power, and so let's get rid of all, all police stations. Let's, let's get rid of police forces. Let's just make this rule by the people. Others argue that this is an issue with poverty, that uh, poverty and lack of opportunity produces crime in the first place. Yet those solutions miss the main problem. The main problem is what Psalm 14 tells us. The main problem is that man is a sinner. There is none who does good. Education will not fix the problem of man because man is a sinner who says there is no God. People do heinous and vile deeds regardless of how intellectually bright or intellectually dumb they might be. The problem isn't education. The problem is man's fallen sinful nature. Power in itself is not the problem either. Power certainly presents more opportunity and ability for sin to occur. But you can have people with immense amounts of power who faithfully and carefully use that for the care and protection of others. The problem is a sinful heart that seeks to hurt and harm others. An elevation of self. Giving out, job, sorry, giving out money and handing out jobs is not the solution to the problem either. We live in the wealthiest country in the world, yet immorality abounds. The government regularly hands out money to those in poverty, yet crime continues. The problem is man's sinful nature. That man drinks down iniquity like he drinks water. Many people asking, how can people be so wicked? That even in that question, there is that self-justifying. How can those people be so wicked? The police officers beating on Tyree Nichols, many asked, how come nobody stopped them? How come nobody stood up to them? But if we are honest with ourselves, we have that exact same tendency towards sin. There is a reason Solomon counseled his son, saying, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, and a whole like those who go down to the pit. Our sinful hearts very quickly follow a group mentality. One person does something sinful. We might think it must be all right because we respect that person. After all, we, we want them to like us. You see there, that this is a problem that's common to all of us. It's the problem of our sinful human nature. If we are to do an honest assessment of ourselves in light of God's word and God's definition of goodness, if you were to search your heart as God look, himself looks down and searches the children of men, would you find yourself to be a sinner? If you're honest with yourself, you would. This psalm thus should be very sobering for us. This psalm is, is a description of all of us apart from the grace of God. It paints a realistic picture of our hearts and our tendency to sin. 
So as we read this psalm and this description of ourselves in this psalm, we should be asking, what hope is there for us? If this truly describes who I am, well, then I am a vile sinner, and I am in great need of hope. Before we get to that hope, we must stop and consider, to the violence of the wicked. David says in verse 4, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord. Here we go and see the animalistic tendencies of sin. Our sinfulness can express itself in such great ways that we, like a predator, treat other human beings as prey. The gossip preys upon the souls of others by, by using what they have done to, to foster false friendships or having the thrill and excitement of, of sharing news to the harm of another's good name. The sexually immoral person preys upon others as he objectifies their body and treats them as objects for his ple- pleasure rather than precious souls created in the image of God. The internet warrior preys upon the sins of others to to nourish his own sense of self-righteousness with little regard for their salvation. These are workers of iniquity. These eat up my people as they eat bread. And here we specifically see that these sinful designs, the sinful predatory designs, while being present in each and every one of us, have a particular expression in those who do not believe in God. The designs of the wicked are, are specifically bent on the destruction of those who fear God. There is a heightened sinfulness in the wicked as they seek to destroy those who would remind them of God's existence. This is just one more aspect of their foolishness. They wage war against those who would testify to them of the truth. But they suppress that truth. That's what we read in Romans 1. We read that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Psalm 14, in verses in verse uh, 4 and 5, describes that suppression of truth by the wicked, specifically against those who believe in God. Because those who believe in God remind them that there indeed is a God. A man attempts to kill God, a God he knows exists. He seeks to remove all evidence of him by attacking the very people of God. Unbelievers suppress the truth with Jesus himself when they crucified him. It was too much for their conscience to bear. And so what better way to deal with the accusations of their conscience than by going and killing the Son of Man himself? And that violent hatred continues today with all those who follow Christ. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know 
that it hated me before it hated you. And we know that it is fear, that's ultimately fear that drives this violence. Verses 5 and 6 say, there they are in great fear. Why are they in fear? For God is with the generation of the righteous. God is, is with his people. And God, God being with the generation of the righteous is a testament that there is a God who will judge them on the last day. Man denies the existence of God so they can freely, in good conscience, sin. But those who place their trust in God are ever-present reminders to them that they are fools. They are denying his existence. Believers produce fear in unbelievers because God is with the generation of the righteous. But what hope is there for us? Well, Psalm 14 tells us that there is hope for the captives. We read that in verse 7, Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. David ends this sobering psalm on a high note of praise. He ends with praise towards God. He ends with, with rejoicing of captives. And this is somewhat puzzling for us at first. What does David mean when he makes mention of the captivity of God's people? During David's life, there was, there was no Babylonian captivity. There was no Assyrian captivity. What is David mentioning here when he speaks of captivity? Well, I believe David speaks here of man's captivity to sin. Man is captive to sin. He is stuck in his sin. He can choose nothing but sin. He drinks down iniquity as he drinks water. The thoughts and intents of his heart are only evil continually. There is none who does good. There is none who seeks after God. We are stuck in our sinfulness. We are captives to it. But praise be to God that he has come to free the captives. Praise be to God that there is salvation that comes out of Zion. There is not salvation in Zion, for in Zion, Zion is filled with sinners. The church is not the savior of men, because the church is full of sinners. But there is salvation that comes out of Zion. Salvation comes out of Zion because there is a Redeemer who the church proclaims. A Redeemer who is perfect and righteous in our place. A Redeemer whose name is Christ the Lord. He is the Messiah, the one sent to deal with our sinfulness. The one who has redeemed us from our captivity. For he has conquered the curse of sin. He's conquered death and rising again from the dead. And so he gives everlasting life to all those who trust in him. An everlasting life and, and freedom that causes rejoicing and gladness. A freedom that opens the, the prison doors of the captives and sets us free. And it is this deliverance from captivity that will be the only solution to deal with the problem, with the problems in the world today. The solution is not education. The solution is not getting rid of power. The solution is not getting rid of poverty. 
The solution is the gospel. That gospel is the Spirit working in our hearts, causing us to be born again, causing us to be set free from our sinfulness because of the work of what Jesus Christ has done, causing us to to glorify God and to desire to, to praise Him all the days of our life. Gospel releases us from our captivity. We looked at many depressing realities of human nature this morning, but know that there is true hope to be found in the gospel. As we hear the depressing stories on the news of human sinfulness, let us be reminded of the importance of the gospel, that the gospel is what changes our sinful human nature. It's a gospel that sets us free. Verse 6 of Psalm 14 said that the Lord is the refuge of the poor. As you have considered your own sinfulness this morning, have you made the Lord your refuge? Ralph Robinson said, Be persuaded actually actually to hide yourself with Christ, to have a hiding place and not to use it is as bad as to want one. Fly to Christ. Run into the holes of this rock. Psalm 14 not only tells us our sinfulness, but it tells us that we have a refuge. We have a rock to run to. Psalm 14 presses us to run to our Savior. For in our Savior, we have refuge from our sinfulness. A refuge that hides and protects us from sin. But also a refuge that rescues us from the wrath of God against sin. This is the hope of captives this morning. This is the hope that is promised to each and every one of us. And so, let us rejoice this morning placing our hope in this refuge. Let us rejoice this month as we sing Psalm 14, be reminded of, of the, the sobering reality of our sinful human nature, but rejoice that the Lord is the refuge of the poor. The Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let us pray. Lord, we indeed are a sinful people. Your word is true and right when it describes our iniquities. We know this intellectually, Lord. We know this experientially as we see the the sinfulness of our hearts and we see the the wickedness of the world around us. Lord, we pray that we would not despair as those without hope, for we indeed have a great hope, a hope in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and our Lord, the one who has set free the captives, the one who has released us from our bondage to sin, the one who has set us free. Lord, we pray that we would ever hope in Him, that more and more there would be those in this generation who rise up and praise You. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.